I'd ask you to please take your copies of God's Word in hand. Turn it with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. Uh, before we read, uh, <clears throat> let me just say that I am very happy and thankful that, uh, to be invited here to open up God's Word uh, to you. Back before I came to um, Westminster here in Huntsville, I was what you would call a circuit preacher in Mississippi, which means I was basically in a bunch of churches' bullpen to come and fill the pulpit whenever their pastor needed a vacation or just a night off or something like that. And so I got kind of uh, used to being at different churches. And since being at Westminster, it's something that I, I miss from time to time to see the, the glory and the expanse of God's kingdom beyond the, the walls of Westminster Presbyterian Church. So uh, very happy, very grateful uh, for the opportunity to do this. Uh, now, uh, our sermon text today, as I've said, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 22. Before I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, would you please turn with me to God in prayer that his help and blessing might be upon our time together. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, the words that we approach are not the words of man, they're certainly not the words of Nick Robinson, but they are the words of the one, the true, and the living God. Father, you have promised that your word will never return void. Father, we had asked that this word might find good soil in our hearts, that it might produce fruit for your kingdom and for your glory rather than for the glory of man. Father, we'd ask that you would please do this for us in the precious name of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, hear now the word of God from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it this evening. Uh, I am, uh, so you don't know me, uh, but I am, in addition to being a pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, I am also a Bible teacher at Westminster Christian Academy. Um, we had a... Um, faculty meeting, uh, this is now a, a couple of weeks ago, and our meeting was about the importance of classroom management. Uh, I teach high school now, mostly juniors and seniors. Uh, it's certainly an important thing now, but before I came to uh, Huntsville to take this position, um, I taught junior high at a Presbyterian school in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And when you teach junior high, you learn very, very quickly the importance of classroom management. It's a little different with high schoolers. You can turn your back for a second and they don't light the room on fire. But when you're a junior high teacher, it's, it can be a little bit different. Uh, you learn very quickly that you have to develop certain reflexes uh, to be able to manage the classroom. And I developed these, I had to develop them fairly quickly, being very quick to say, sit down, be quiet, don't stick that in your nose, whatever it might be, really quick. But Sometimes this would get me in trouble a little bit because, like, with reflexes, you just can't 
turn them off. It's not like it's not like I can just be a teacher in the classroom and then all of a sudden to be something entirely different. This almost gets me in trouble. I was in academy sports, going to buy a pair of shoes, and as I'm trying them on, a couple of kids come running behind me. They're kind of wrestling, roughhousing, and I jerk around really quick, to, you know, to, to give them the business. And I turn around. I'm face to face with their mother, and not the kids. Now. By the grace of God, he stopped me from saying anything and probably getting slapped in the face, had the police called on me or something like that. But you see how reflexes work. They, they can be kind of hard to turn off. They become kind of part of who we are. We as Christians have certain reflexes as well. Things that just become a part of who we are. And this makes perfect sense if you read particularly the letters of Paul and, and think about, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You are in his possession. You cannot help but be changed. You cannot help but look different from the world. You are in union through that spirit with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Radically so. So radically so that Paul can say that even though you're sitting right here in this room, you're also seated with him in the heavenly places. Where you are, Christ is. Where Christ is, you are. You are in union with him. And then, on top of that, you have been grafted into his body, his visible body, the church. These people that you're sitting around, they have an effect upon you. You have an effect upon them. You edify them, they edify you. It's part of being a Christian, to be changed. You're not who you once were. You're changed, you're sanctified, you're set apart from the world. And because of this, you cannot help but act, think, behave, and to have reflexes very, very differently from the world. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us many different reflexes. Actually, in this passage, he gives us many different imperative commands of what we should be doing. But I think you can take these commands and put them into two different categories. So our sermon today, rather than making a point of every single one of them, I think we can look at these in two different categories and have two different sets of Christian reflexes. The first one will be our perpetual praise. And the second reflex will be our testing of teaching, perpetual praise and testing of teaching. Let's begin by looking at our perpetual praise. Look with me in verses 16 through 18. Paul gives the Thessalonian church three different yet related commands. He tells them to be rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances. Now, when you look at these three commands, the first thing you probably notice that they have in common is there is a perpetual nature to these commands. Paul's not telling us to do them every now and then, whenever we feel like it. He's saying always and forever be rejoicing, be praying, and giving thanks. So the first thing I want to look at is this perpetual nature of these commands. Now, the command to always be doing anything can seem like a very hard command, can it not? To always be rejoicing, to always be praying, to always be doing anything, it can be very difficult. But this can tempt us to maybe kind of water it down a little bit. Now, we do need to look, understand exactly kind of what this looks like practically in the Christian life, but rather than watering it down, we need to let this perpetual command 
bring us to an underlying truth that all Christians must come to face at some point in their life. That if Christ Jesus is your Savior, he is also your Lord. You would think it a very difficult thing if he was only partially your Savior, wouldn't you? You're only saved part of the time. You're only atoned for part of the time. But by the grace of God, that's not how it is. He is perpetually our Savior. But he is also perpetually our Lord. I think Abraham Kuyper puts it best in his now famous statement, There is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It is his. Many of the things that we do as Christians, we do because we belong to Christ. We give tithes. Now, by giving tithes, is hopefully this, this genders in us a, a, a charitable heart, a heart for giving, being cheerful givers. But there's also a sense in which we give tithes because our bank accounts are not our bank accounts. Christ is the Lord of our bank accounts. There's a sense when we go into work, no matter if that's our work as a spouse, a father, an engineer, a dump truck driver, whatever it is, when we go into that work, we are going into it carrying on us the name of Jesus Christ. We are perpetually in his possession. You are always his. Every part of you is his. Now, this sounds a bit intrusive to our hyper-individualistic American minds, but what does Paul say is the product of this, per- of this perpetual possession of Christ? He says the product of this is our rejoicing, our, pr- our prayer, and our thanksgiving. To put it another way, our praise, an outflowing of joy an outflowing of appreciation for being in the position of Christ. And this makes sense because what is it that Christ does for us when he comes into possession of us? Does he not act as our prophet, revealing to us the the word of God, revealing to us the person of God, the character of God? Does he not act as our priest, after the order of Melchizedek, living forever and ever and ever in, in the presence of God, making atonement, making intercession for us by the application of our blood always and forever? Does he not act as our king, protecting us from the arrows of Satan and the world? Is this not a cause for our rejoicing? Is this not a call for us to be thankful for being in his possession? We think of this as being a difficult thing, but look at the reward that you have in it. The beauty that is drawn out of it. To be in possession, to be in the possession of Christ is for you to be in the possession of Christ and all of his blessings. How could this not cause us to to express this through a perpetual posture of praying and praising God for the mercy that he has shown us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me now briefly explain what I think this looks like for the Christian lives, particularly by focusing in on this this concept of, of praying without ceasing. What exactly does this look like? Now, let me first start off by saying what I don't think Paul is saying. I don't think Paul is calling us to live a monastic life 
where we kind of leave our works, we leave our families, and just dedicate ourselves to just every minute of every day, praying, fasting, something like Martin Luther talks about in his life as an Augustinian monk. Paul has a very strong theology of vocation and work. He has a very strong theology of the family, of being a father, of being, of being, of being a father, being a son, being a mother, being a grandparent. So he's not asking us to forsake those things. But what exactly is he telling us to do? What he means by pray without ceasing is that, a Christian, for, that as a Christian, prayer should be a basic reflex of the Christian throughout the day. That should be your knee-jerk reaction to the things that you encounter through the day. But as I mentioned, my reflex to turn around and start screaming at kids that aren't mine was developed over time, developed by being in a particular, uh, particular scenario day in and day out. It's the same thing with prayer. I mean, prayer can be a difficult thing for us, can it? I remember R.C. Sproul once, once saying, if you want to make a Christian uncomfortable, just ask him about his prayer life. Ask him about his prayer life, immediately uncomfort. Well, how exactly do we do it? How exactly do we become perpetual prayers? People who pray without ceasing. Pray, people who pray just throughout their day. Practice. Practice. You know, I not think of this, but John Calvin himself spoke about having a difficult time praying. But you know how he fixed that? By making it a part of his daily routine. Spacing out times during the day when he would specifically and purposely set everything aside and go to God in prayer. He would do this five times in a day. He would do it in the morning. He would do it before work. He would do it at lunch. He would do it after work. And he would do it before bed. Five times. Now before you start thinking, well this is Calvin. These are probably mega super prayers. Something like you might think of Martin Luther saying, I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours of it in prayer. Well, Calvin actually gives, gives us a few examples of what these prayers looked like. And I went through and I read through several of them. I don't think any of them took me more than, at least much, at least much more than about a minute to read. These were not mega prayers. These were just daily affirmations, daily, daily moments where he could go to God and just be with God in prayer. Now, what this produces is more prayer. A little thing to, to, to maybe think about and remember is that prayer will beget prayer. The more you pray, the more you purposely pray, the more you'll kind of find yourself accidentally praying. Uh, my wife and I have um, are kind of on the precipice of some fairly major life changes uh, uh, coming up, and this has really caused us to, to, to go to God a lot more in, a lot more in prayer um, uh, than, we, than we normally would, um, spending more time in prayer. And something that I've, I've noticed this having, an effect that I've noticed this having on my life is really more time in what I would call meditation. And by meditation, I don't mean this in like the Buddhist Eastern sense where I empty myself and then I'm just filled by like whatever thoughts pop into my head. That's not what I'm talking about. When I think about meditation, the definition that I like to give for it is that thinking with an awareness of God, particularly thinking with an awareness of God's kind, familial, fatherly disposition toward me in Jesus Christ. Now, what this means is, as I'm going through my day, like just the other day I was driving to work. I drive through a lot of cotton fields on my way to work. The sun was coming over the, over, over the top of the, the, cotton, the cotton bulbs that were, that were 
more than ready to be to be harvested. It was a nice, cool day. Fall was in the air. Fall was in the trees. And I'm looking at that. And normally, I think I would just look at it and say, well, that's a, really, it's a very pretty day, and then go about my business. But in that moment, I just was keenly aware that the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God, that from them pours out speech. Where does that come from? Prayer. The Lord loves it when we pray. Our, 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 our prayer, when we, when we go to God in prayer asking that we might have a heart for prayer, this is a prayer that he loves to answer in the affirmative. Pray. Practice it. Make it a part of your daily life. Now, this might, we can look at this idea of always rejoicing and always praying with rose-colored glasses. I mean, that sounds good. Happy, 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 happy. But all of life isn't exactly happy, is it? It's easy to rejoice whenever the circumstances we seek, we think, call for it. When you get a job promotion, birth of a child, happy times, praise, things like that. But what about when we were standing looking at a doctor who was giving us bad news? What about when we were at the funeral home, mourning the life of the death of a loved one, someone who is very near and dear to us? What do we do in the midst of pain and suffering? I think this is the point of this last imperative command that Paul gives us. He says, to give thanks in all circumstances, all of them. Now, when he says all of them, I think he's specifically referencing and drawing our mind to the parts and points in our lives where we do not feel like giving thanks to God. Now, this sounds like madness, doesn't it? To have joy and sorrow, thanksgiving and loss. How can this be possible? Paul gives us the answer in the second half of verse 18 when he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So hear me very carefully on this. This is very important. How a Christian responds to a particular circumstance is not decided by the circumstance. It is decided by the will of God and our knowledge of it. It is the will of God that gives rise to our thanksgiving, not the circumstances. Because here's the thing, not every circumstance calls for our thanksgiving, does it? They simply don't. This is why Paul says that we are to give thanks, thanksgiving to God in all circumstances rather than for all circumstances. The Bible is replete with different examples of people going to God in prayer, asking for justice to be done for the injustice that has been done to them. It's full of it. So he's not telling us to give thanks for all things, for all circumstances. He is telling us to give thanks in this. The Christian does this because the Christian has a hope that is produced by grace. By the grace of God. This is a hope that the world does not understand. It is foreign and it is alien to the world. Paul draws our attention to this when he says, and Paul draws our attention to this when he says that this is the will of God, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. You see, when the idea of the will of God 
for our lives. Sounds horrifying, like a terror, uncertain. We don't know where this is going. When, we, when it scares us, it shows that we have a deficient understanding of the will of God for us in Jesus Christ. We have a deficient understanding of how utterly changed his disposition for us is in the personal work of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see you as you. He doesn't see me as me. He sees us through the lens of us being clothed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no more wrath. It is God who has saved. It is God who has sent his son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you repeat that to yourself in prayer, in meditation, it will draw out of you thanksgiving that your circumstances never will. Let me quote John Calvin on this, because he's, he's really good on pretty much everything, but he's really good on this. He says, God has such a disposition toward us in Christ that even in our afflictions, we have large occasion for thanksgiving. For what is fitter and more suitable for pacifying us than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. In Christ, we can be most assured that God does indeed work all things together for our good. But we are prone to forget this, aren't we? The, uh, Martin Luther said that uh, he had to remind himself of the gospel every day because he forgot the gospel every day. Martin Luther says that he's speaking about having to minister to himself on occasion. Sometimes we have to minister to ourselves. But God has given us over to the body of Christ. These people sitting next to you, whoever is standing in this pulpit, these are all ministers pointing you reminding you of the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you are never, ever without him. We all need ministers. We all need the ministry of the gospel in Christ Jesus. However, we oftentimes will allow our circumstances to be our ministers instead, don't we? And here's the thing. Our our circumstances are very often false prophets. We need true prophets. We need true ministers. And I think this is what Paul is saying in this next section, when he's telling us to foster the reflex of testing our teachers, testing our teachers. So now in verse 19, Paul warns the Thessalonians to not quench the spirit. By quench here, Paul is speaking of people's repression or resisting of the Holy Spirit. The word quench is apt, given that throughout the Bible, the Spirit's presence is often manifested by a fire. And just as fire gives light, so the Holy Spirit brings light into our minds and makes us new, crea- new creatures after the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's obvious that the Spirit may be quenched in various ways, through our sin, through our breaking of the law of God, which Christ came to fulfill, 
through our giving our minds over to temptation. And here's the thing, temptation is something that is utterly unavoidable in a fallen world. You can't escape from it. It is going to be with you. But here's one thing, but here's, so you can't control that. But one thing, one thing that by the Spirit you can control is giving your mind over to it dwelling upon it rather than dwelling upon the work and ministry of the spirit who points you to the finished work of christ this can quench the spirit but paul here in this passage isn't speaking about law breaking or temptation he's speaking of a particular type of quenching the quenching that comes from the despising of prophecy he says do not despise prophecy And this is an especially heinous form of quenching. For the Holy Spirit brings the quickening light of the gospel through revelation. And he brings revelation most regularly through the preaching of the word. Now, I have no doubt that by uh, despising prophecy, by prophecy that Paul means in the context of 1 Thessalonians, most likely a, a supernatural form of prophecy, which would have been necessary in the first century. The New Testament had not been written. The works of the apostles had not been completed. The canon of the New Testament had not yet come together. These churches would have required this type of supernatural revelation. But how are we to receive this? How are we to apply this? Because we live on this side of the writing of the New Testament. We have the teachings of the apostles. How are we to understand? What does prophecy mean to us sitting here in Huntsville, Alabama in 2022? I think Calvin's definition for this suffices. He says that prophecy is the scriptures interpreted and made applicable to present use. Or to put it in my own words, modern prophecy is nothing other than preaching. And to despise or even disregard it is to quench the Holy Spirit, who, as Calvin also says, has been pleased to join his power with the voices of preachers and to make their mouth his own. We must answer the question, how much does a Christian need to sit under biblical preaching with another question? How much does a Christian need the Holy Spirit? How much does a Christian need Jesus Christ, and him being publicly portrayed as crucified before their very eyes. I think, I can't remember who said this, I'm stealing it from somebody, I just don't know who, who has said that the sermon that you need the most is the sermon that you missed. How many, what are the sermons that you need? All of them. All of them. Can you sit under the sermon? Go sit under the preaching of the word of God. But why had the Thessalonians, why had they been tempted, at the very least, to despise prophecy? Or maybe, specifically, that's been something that they've been doing. So, because here's the thing, I just went through a series on 1 Thessalonians. I apologize, I did not know that until I'd already picked this passage. Uh, but you've already, already gone through 1 Thessalonians. You know already that Paul has been kind of at a loss to find really anything to really critique them on. He has been very, very praiseworthy. I read Galatians uh, uh, at, the, at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of the service, but Paul is just jumping all over the Galatians case. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, very positive books. Um, he says often, I think three or four times, how they have been, how they have become examples for churches throughout Macedonia and throughout Greece. Yet 
So, so what is it exactly that has threatened them? To that has threatened them? That has brought them to a place where they might conceivably be despising prophecy? I think a I think a pretty good answer to this question is there must have been false prophets and false teachers who had been coming in and out of this of this congregation. So much so that they didn't feel like they could trust any prophecy. They couldn't, pre- they couldn't trust any proclamation of the word of God. And so they just started despising the preaching of the gospel. They started despising preaching itself. Perhaps this is why there is so much confusion in the church for what, uh, for what to think about the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, how to live and, to, and what to do in light of Jesus' return. And if this is the case, then Paul's next imperative would make a lot of sense. He says that rather than despising prophecy, the Thessalonians are instead to test everything. <coughs> test prophecy. Test preaching. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I'll read it for you. You know, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, but in the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying that you were already led astray once. Make sure that it doesn't happen again. It's one thing to be led astray from Christ as a pagan. It's another thing to be led away from Christ as a Christian. Be on guard. There are people who do not, who will stand in the pulpit who do not have your best interests in heart, who do not have the best interests of, of, of the glory of God in Christ Jesus at heart. They have their own glory to be put on display. And so instead they will mask the glory that is seen in the gospel. In Galatians 1, what I read earlier, Paul says the same thing. If anyone comes to you preaching a gospel other than the go- uh, preaching a gospel other than the gospel that you have received from us, let him be accursed. The Greek word for that is anathema. It is strong language that he uses. Accursed under the wrath of God. The test of the true gospel was simple. Was it in accord with the gospel that they had received before from the mouths of the apostles? The gospel does not change. There is no such thing as a new gospel. There is only the old gospel. It is not an invention of man, nor can it be edited by man. It is God's gospel, and it reflects his immutable, unchanging character. There is only one gospel. False teaching is a cancer, but far more deadly. No one seeks out cancer. No one looks at someone who is cancer-ridden and says, that looks nice. I had a great aunt who died of cancer a number of years ago. I went to the hospital and I saw her a week or two before she died. It was a horrific sight. There was nothing about that. It was appealing. But here's the thing. False teaching and false gospel... It's far, far more deadly. You see, cancer killed the body of my aunt, but it could not touch her soul. False teaching can. A false gospel can. The one who stands in the pulpit, who opens up 
the word of God, who declares his name, can do far more damage than any disease, virus, cancer that is known to man. It is a dangerous thing to be under false teaching. It is a cancer, only far worse. Listen to what the Puritan Thomas Brooks says about false teaching. He says, Many in these days are bewitched and deceived by the magnificent words and lofty strains of the deceivers. False teachers put a great deal of pain and garnish upon their most dangerous principles and blasphemies, that they may better de- de- that they may better deceive and delude poor and ignorant souls. They know sugared poison goes down sweetly. They wrap the pernicious soul-killing pills in gold. And the gold that our modern false prophets like to wrap their poison pills in is the goal is the gold of removing the offense from the gospel. To our modern sensibilities, there's nothing worse than causing offense, being offensive. We believe in the therapeutic, but not in the way that we try to solve problems, but in a way that we end up refusing to even call them problems. We cover them up. We end up calling evil good and good evil for the sake of people's feelings, for the sake of their emotional state. And you even see this in some more conservative circles. It is even something that I have felt convicted of myself. Not that I feel that I have outright called evil good or good evil, but I find in myself, I find myself trying to figure out ways to promote the good without just coming right out and calling evil evil in order to spare feelings, to remain therapeutic, to cover up the offensiveness of the gospel. Now, I'm not advocating for either extreme here. I'm certainly not advocating for a gospel that only offends. However, I do want us in the light of what Paul is saying in First Thessalonians 5 to be certain that we are not removing every ounce of offensiveness from the gospel. For if we remove all offense from the gospel, then I'm afraid that what we're left with is a gospel without a cross. The cross bears terrible witness to the great offensiveness of our sin before a holy God. For to propitiate, to remove his wrath from his people, it took him sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and crushing him, destroying him for the sake of our sins. Now, what does that say about our sins? What does that say if we seek refuge in anything that isn't the person and work of Jesus Christ? Can we hide from the wrath of God by our own good works, positive thinking? The Bible tells us that in the last days, people will will run to the mountains and beg them to fall upon them and crush them. But here's the thing, death can't hide you either. Nothing can hide you from the wrath of a holy God who cannot stand in the presence of sin. He must punishment. In this way, the cross is anti-therapeutic. It says you are not okay, you're not good enough, you have not given it your best, you're not fine the way you are, you're under wrath. Unless, unless you have found refuge in the rock. 
unless you have found refuge in the shadow of the cross and have had your sins removed from you. The wrath of God removed from you as far as the east is from the west through the blood and the accomplished work of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only light, and no one can come to the Father except through him. There is no escaping it apart from the work of Christ. There is immense offense in the gospel of Christ. Immense offense. God cannot stand sin. We are not okay. But praise be to God that Christ Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. And I believe that this is the ultimate test for what is good and should be held fast to, mentioned in verse 22. And what is evil and should be rejected? Is Christ made much of in the preaching of the word? Yes or no? Is Christ made much of? Spirit-filled preaching will always make much of the glory of God through the salvation of sinners, through the once and for all perfect obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it should be the Christian's reflex to seek out, seek out Christ in the ministry of the word. And not just seek out and look for it but to demand it. There's a church I mentioned a while ago preaching in a bunch of small churches and a little town called Learned, Mississippi. It's only about, there might be 50 people that live there. But there's a Presbyterian church there, Lebanon Presbyterian. And when you're standing in the back of the pulpit, right engraved right here are the words, Sir, we would see Christ. That should be engraved in every pulpit in America. It's not a request, it is a demand. Sir, we would see Christ publicly portrayed as crucified before our very eyes. Sir, if you would wound us with the law, mend us with the cross. If you would comfort us with grace, send us into the world with a heart bursting with thankful obedience unto God through what Christ has done for us. May I live for him and not for my own sake, not for my own glory or the glory of the world, but to live for him. It is a demand that the, that the Christian should make of the one who sits in the pulpit. In Corinthians 9, Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I would add to that, Woe to the congregation who does not demand this much of those who would proclaim the word of God. For how will you ever develop a reflex of perpetual praise if Christ is not perpetually proclaimed? Let's pray. Our most gracious and precious Heavenly Father, your word is true. It is life. It is our hope. It is our joy. Father, we'd ask that you would forgive us when it is not. And that instead of, of, instead of, 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 of beating us down, Father, even though we so rightly deserve it, we'd ask, Father, that by your grace you would build us up that you would reach down into the muck and mire of our sin, that you would draw our hearts out, that you would conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, that we might proclaim you, that we might give praise to your name as Christ has done perfectly and perpetually. Father, we'd ask you this in his name and in his name alone. Amen.